Falava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susanna Suiswiki. Coming up... The government does not speak for all the people in this country. Pacific states voting against a UN resolution for a ceasefire in Gaza has been called hypocritical. Also... The main concern of the locals is uh, having a place to sleep or having a place for families to stay under. Cyclone Lola claims two lives in Manawatu. And later on, refugee advocate in Australia says Nauru's new president is the preferred choice. The decision by many Pacific states to vote against a UN resolution for a ceasefire in the Gaza conflict has been called hypocritical. Pacific human rights advocates, academics and political figures are claiming it's akin to being complicit to genocide. Israel argued that any ceasefire would give Hamas time to rearm and attack Israel again. Following the massacre of at least 1,400 Israeli citizens, most of them civilians, on October 7th, more than 220 were taken hostage. Fiji was among five other Pacific states that voted against adopting the United Nations Resolution for the Protection of Civilians and Upholding Legal and Humanitarian Obligations. The vote resulted in 120 nations, including New Zealand, Solomon Islands voting in favour. However, the majority of Pacific states voted against it, siding with the United States, Israel and United Kingdom, as Alicia Foon reports. Fiji, Marshall Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, Papua New Guinea, Nauru and Tonga voted against the UN resolution for a ceasefire to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. The death toll among Palestinians has passed 8,000. They are mostly women and children and more than 1.4 million people in Gaza have fled their homes. A Papua New Guinea lawyer, Dr Balkama, says it's a hypocrisy and one that will haunt the Pacific. For the Pacific to now turn around and vote no on a clear resolution that calls for humanitarian obligations to be exercised, it is a uttermost hypocrisy and something that will taint Pacific going forward in terms of our demand for global humanitarian intervention in our courses. While Australia, Kiribati, Palau, Tuvalu, Vanuatu abstained from voting, Samoa remained silent in the vote. But New Zealand and Solomon Islands voted in favour of a ceasefire, something former Prime Minister and Fiji First Leader Frank Bunimarama wished Fiji had done. We need to have a ceasefire, so uh, we stop this unnecessary killing for once. And of course, uh, the ceasefire is, allow, is to allow uh, humanitarian aid into the area. Fiji Council of Social Services CEO Vani Datanasinger says voting against a ceasefire is to support genocide in Gaza. And that's not to, to water down that Israel has has also been impacted, but it's also to acknowledge that there, there must be a ceasefire in order for civilians to be protected. Frank Bunimarama says Fiji's vote at the United Nations in favour of war contradicts the nation's long-standing legacy as peacekeepers. The former Prime Minister says he does not take sides, but was for a solution to save thousands of innocent people, including women and children. Earlier this month, Fiji Prime Minister Sitiveni Ramboka called himself an apostle of peace and proposed the Pacific be a conflict-free peace zone. Yes, he's been contradicting himself in the last six months. He keeps talking about uh, an ocean of peace here in the Pacific, but, he, but yet he allows this innocent killing and the war in, in the Middle East to continue. A Fijian human rights advocate says Fiji's vote alongside other Pacific states against a UN resolution is shameful. 
She says they are calling on the Fijian government to rethink its position. Human rights advocate Shamima Ali has applied for a permit to protest in an organised march on November 16th, which is being reviewed by Fiji police. The government does not speak for all the people in this country. That uh, decision that the government took after calling for a ceasefire and then flip-flopping, and the least our government could have done was if they didn't want to abstain rather than come out so shamefully and uh, voting against a ceasefire where genocide is being committed. Frank Bunimarama also fears how the Fiji government's decision will impact Fijian military troops stationed in the Middle East. The other thing that we should be worried about, we have troops in the Middle East. They are stationed in Iraq, in Sinai, uh, in Syria, in Golan. So they're spread all over the Middle East. The Fiji government has been approached for comment. At least two people have been killed on Ambram Island in Vanuatu when it was hit by severe tropical cyclone Lola last week. The deaths, a pregnant woman and elderly woman, were caused when one of the health clinics on Ambram had been destroyed. Pentecost Island in Vanuatu was hit by the strongest winds, with the gusts getting close to 260 kilometres per hour. Locals are now left to pick up the pieces from the extensive damage. James Hinge, who's on the ground with Save the Children Vanuatu, speaks to Caleb Fotheringham about what it's like. What I am seeing on ground is a massive damage uh, in terms of the Category 5 cyclone, which slowly turns into a Cat 4, uh, hitting Pentecost Island, which stayed here for seven hours before moving to the southern islands. Uh, there were massive damage in terms of um, houses and as well as garden. I had a chance to, to be on a truck yesterday heading down to the northern side of the island and it was just damaged, like massively damaged. James, we've heard of two casualties. Have you heard of any deaths on Pentecost? At the moment, I am in the central Pentecost uh, 1 area, and I had the opportunity to move down to the northern side of the island and not, not really down to the north, but just up the north. There are no deaths currently. Given the fact that internet connectivity is one of the biggest issues currently, I could not confirm any of the other areas, but from the CB1, uh, central Pentecost area 1, and part of the northern, uh, northern island, uh, there are no deaths. And what are the main concerns for the locals right now? Um, right now, the main concern of the locals is uh, having a place to sleep or having a place for families to stay under while they are trying to get up their, their houses back on. Uh, shelter is the number one priority I can see. And this is visi- the, the visibility of seeing all the houses damaged. Uh, and when I say damaged, it is you know down to the ground level. Nothing is up uh, in the sense of any posts or covers or you know uh, local touches. Nothing is up. So main concerns of the of the families now is uh, shelters. And within one to uh, two weeks time, I am pretty sure their concerns will uh, switch off from houses to food, given that all their gardens and uh, crops are being damaged through the uh, category five, uh, heading to four cyclone. Well, that sounds really tough. They obviously have to stay somewhere, though. So where are they staying at the moment? I had a visit down to the northern side of the island, and the you know what I see there was it was really touching and emotional. Currently, what they're trying their best to do is to remove some of the some of the materials from their houses that is still okay, 
and they're, they're currently just putting up, you know, putting it together uh, and at least having a place where they can shelter under. And as well as uh, some of them are being housed by families whom, you know, some of their houses are permanent houses and probably one or two roofs have been blown out by the cyclone, uh, but it's still up and they're, they're currently using that. One good thing about this island that I noticed is the communities, they're working together in the sense of trying to mobilize people to houses and safe centers. Not much safe centers were built within this island. As I've mentioned earlier, it's a rural area where most, uh, 75% of the people within this province live on that island. And therefore, they're working together. They're mobilizing and trying their best to at least get people to safe zones or to safe houses to live and to look after each other while waiting for the government to respond. You see the second priority once they fix their shelter issue or the government comes in to assist the shelter is food. How long will people have with their current food stocks? How long will that last them? I can say probably just one week, given the condition of most of the crops in the in the garden and um, most people within this island, they live on the on the root crops, and these root crops were damaged by um, the cyclone. And um, how long can this root crop last? Uh, you know, from getting them out from the ground and you know probably cooking them and eating them, I'd say a week for them. Uh, after that, uh, we definitely need immediate response from the from the government as well as the NGOs to work together on providing something on the ground to these people. Is there a concern on the ground that food won't come in time? We have currently uh, National Disaster Management Office uh, of the Vanuatu government is um, has uh, Red Cross and Save the Children on ground. And um, Red Cross is currently providing some rations. In terms of distributing, it hasn't started yet, given that we really want to ensure that everyone is being reached. So this is something that we, ha- we are planning out today uh, and then probably start of distribution today, sorry, tomorrow. But in terms of food reaching out, uh, as I've mentioned earlier, it would be an, an, an immediate need for the, for the people of the island of Pentecost. And this is something that needs to be, you know, to be reached out to the, to the island at the soonest. They have that concern of, uh, you know, food reaching out to, to them, given the fact of, um, you know, the previous disasters, T.C. Harold, that has uh, damaged Pentecost. Uh, but that's something that they can definitely look into, given that some of the uh, government support reliefs are already coming into the island. What are people on Pentecost saying about this cyclone? People from the island, a lot of them have quote, this is one of the, um, one of the cyclones that they've experienced that is the most devastating one, given the last one that they had was Cyclone Uma uh, way back in the 1970s. They've never had anything really, really that, you know, that severe um, in the past, uh, given that T.C. Harold has just flown over Pentecost and most of the most of the part of the island that was damaged was central Pentecost. The current area that I am in is the uh, central Pentecost one and the northern part of the island. And this is one of the most frightening experience they have ever had. I had um, a couple of, uh, like a place, uh, a family where they had to, uh, the house was all blown out and what they had to do is they had to just duck under beds, uh, their bed, uh, just to survive the cyclone within the seven, seven hours that it flown across Pentecost Island, which they had been under the bed for the seven hours with the house roofing and everything off and their family just had their, be- their best trying to hold onto the beds and stay there until the cyclone uh, passed the, 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 the area. From the people in the community, it was one of the most frightening experience and as well as one of the experience in which most of the children have, have mentioned that it would always it will it will stay within their hearts for quite a while. I given that it's one of the experiences that they've, it's a first hand experience that they've gone through.
Refugee Action Coalition says Australia has recommenced its program of detaining asylum seekers in Nauru. Lydia Lewis spoke with refugee advocate Ian Rinsholm about the new Nauru president and Nauru's candidates for the next Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum. She started off asking on what's the latest on the refugees arriving on Nauru. He says the 11 asylum seekers were sent there in September. It's all very secretive because the, the Labor government, like the previous Morrison government, is re- refusing to answer very many direct questions. But from what we do know, uh, in September there was a boat uh, picked up. We're not sure where it was picked up. Uh, the government won't disclose that. But 11 uh, Tamil so- asylum seekers were taken taken to Nauru. Uh, and um, we now know that amongst those 11 is a, a mother and a, a 17-year-old. Uh, so there is a not an unaccompanied minor, but there is a, a minor uh, as, uh, as part of the, the group of, of 11, uh, we're presuming, uh, Tamils uh, that are now uh, in Nauru. And after all of the work that was done to ensure that no one has to go through uh, the brutal detention that you've been campaigning against for many years, is this disappointing or how would you describe this? Well, of course, it's, dis- it's disappointing, uh, but the uh, the tragedy always has been that the Labor government is committed and remains committed to the whole architecture of you know, Operation Sovereign Borders, including spending you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to keep Nauru open as a functional you know, detention centre. Uh, and uh, this was uh, inevitable, in my opinion, uh, that, at, that at some point uh, people would be intercepted and would be you know, taken, taken to Nauru. Uh, one of our concerns is that uh, whether people are going to be allowed to make a, a refugee application on Nauru uh, under the laws that you know, presently exist there for them to make that application and be processed on Nauru, or whether, as we've seen in other cases, uh, the Australian government might to uh, effectively screen them out, uh, that is, to uh, quickly uh, ascertain whether they believe that, that people have protection claims and then try to return them uh, to Sri Lanka. As far as we know, they're still um, on the on Nauru, uh, but when the government was questioned about this in Senate estimates uh, last week, uh, they refused to divulge any you know, basic information not the, not the date that the boat was intercepted, not the place the boat was intercepted, um, and even refused to disclose, uh, you know, the uh, the people or the composition of the group, you know, that was uh, you know that was intercepted. Uh, so, um, you know, that side of things is very very disappointing uh, that the Labor government is maintaining the same kind of secrecy that the Morrison government, uh, you know, kept the whole operation of sovereign borders shrouded in. Nauru has now got a new president, David Adiang, just in news to hand in the last hour. What do you uh, know about David Adiang and what is his history in terms of the refugee situation? His reputation was for as someone who was a little more sympathetic to the you know the refugee situation uh, so I would be um, you know hoping that uh, he would be taking a much more you know a much more critical view of uh, you know labor using the rue as a detention center than uh, than the previous Prime Minister. But the, the tragedy is for Nauru is that there's such a huge proportion of its income now comes from you know, the detention centre, even at a time when there's no people being detained, when there's only 11 being, people being detained, there is a, a huge apparatus 
forests are still being, you know, underwritten by, you know, by the Australian government. And that has been the tragedy that effectively a huge amount of Nauru's income actually comes from, you know, Australia maintaining a detention facility, you know, on Nauru. So as much as I would like to think uh, David Adiang is more sympathetic uh, than uh, other prime ministers and certainly the one that's gone, um, and uh, probably would be my preferred choice of the, the candidates that were up to uh, up to replace the one that's been deposed. Um, I don't really hold any hopes, uh, you know, that uh, he's you know he's about to close down, you know, detention on the Roo anytime soon. We've got the upcoming Pacific Islands Forum, and to my knowledge, Baron Wanga is still the incoming or is still going to be the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, obviously still to be confirmed following the leaders' meeting. Can you tell me in your own words what Baron Wanga's history is like and why he's come under so much fire regarding refugees? Yeah, he is one of the uh, the most forthright of maintaining the detention centre, the most you know eager and enthusiastic uh, to be a willing accomplice uh, to Australia's offshore offshore detention arrangements, and uh, I think that's why. And he's been extremely you know critical of of any opposition. I'm just sort of struggling now to remember the name, but there was one guy that uh, Wonga was uh, critical to uh, keeping off uh, you know off Nauru, and um, he was also a previous prime minister who uh, was. Ve- very, very vocal um, about the uh, about the treatment of refugees on Nauru and about the complicity of Nauru uh, in the abuse of human rights, uh, the asylum seekers' human rights on Nauru. Uh, but uh, Wonga made sure he couldn't go back to Nauru. Uh, that other other people, he's uh, you know had a reputation as quite a you know, a ruthless uh, operator in a in a government that's uh, renowned for its uh, you know its level of its level of uh, you know corruption and nepotism. And so, what's your message to Pacific leaders? as they meet next week to decide who is going to lead them? I mean, do you believe he's fit to lead 18 members of the Pacific Islands Forum on a world stage? Uh, no, look, he's never he's never been fit, and it's very very disappointing uh, that Nauru put him forward, and that other Pacific leaders were, were willing to uh, you know accept him as the leader of the Pacific Forum. The Pacific Forum's got a re- bit of a reputation, actually, of you know standing up for the you know the rights of the Pacific nations. Uh, Nauru's not not one of them. No, Nauru and certainly uh, is not uh, not someone who will actually you know stand up for the rights against the you know powers like uh, like you know like Australia or like China. Or like the you know the US and uh, that's desperately what's needed in the, in the Pacific, um, and I think uh, having Wonga there actually stains uh, you know the uh, the Pacific uh, Forum as uh, with someone who you know has uh, spoken out very strongly you know um, in support of the, de- the de- detention and the uh, you know abuse of asylum seekers' rights on you know on the roof. So uh, I'd be very hopeful you know that he he you know he was deposed. There are very very big issues over questions of climate, Melanesia. West Papua uh, that uh, the Pacific Islands uh, need to uh, need to address, and uh, Wong is not going to help them do that. RNZ Pacific has reached out to Australia's Home Affairs Department and Nauru's government for comment. In New Caledonia, the leaders of several independence and nationalist parties have released a joint letter calling on the international community to support their efforts to put an end to the recolonisation of Kanaki, New Caledonia by France. The letter, dated 25th October, is signed by five political groupings, including the largest pro-independence Kanak party, Union Caledonia. 
It has been released ahead of a planned visit to New Caledonia next month by France's overseas minister, Gerald Demanin, but also ahead of the Pacific Islands Leader Summits, which is soon taking place in the Cook Islands. The letter outlines concerns in three key areas. The disputed third independence referendum, which was boycotted by pro-independence indigenous voters, a proposal to open up restricted electoral roles in the territory, and the announcement of an increased military presence in New Caledonia. Koroi Hawkins speaks with Ireland's business correspondent Nick McLellan, who has been following developments in the French territory. A coalition of uh, independence parties and trade unions has issued a statement in the lead-up to the visit by France's overseas minister, Gérald Darmanin, which is due uh, late in October. This is yet another in a series of visits by the French overseas minister to negotiate a new political statute. But there are some differences within the independence movement about the best way forward. Two parties that are members of the UNI parliamentary group um, have agreed to meet with Damana and talk about uh, their vision of a, what they call independence in partnership with France. But a number of other political formations, particularly the largest independence party, Union Caledonienne, believe that France is not uh, addressing long-standing concerns that have been raised during negotiations over the last 18 months. And indeed, Union Caledonienne and these other smaller groups that have signed this statement won't be talking to Damanar. Uh, Union Caledonian has said they'll only start negotiating after the their next Congress, Party Congress, in November. Now there are a few few components um, in in this, and and just breaking it down as you have first bit is again going back to that third referendum, third and uh, final in France's eyes. Uh, the controversy around that for the FLNKS for independence parties. What have what have they raised here? I know it's been through the courts. It's been through all of these challenges in France, and France maintains that it's legitimate. But what are the concerns they're raising? The three referendums held between 2018 and 2021 were the culmination of a 25-year transition under a framework agreement known as the Namir Accord. The idea was that over that 25 years, Paris would transfer powers to the local government and Congress of New Caledonia, and that the final referendums would decide on what they called the sovereign powers, key powers like currency, the courts, policing, defence, and most aspects of foreign policy. The independence movement and many supporters, particularly of Indigenous Kanak, feel that they were robbed. The first two referendums in 2018 and 2020 were well managed. Um, All sides, supporters and opponents of independence, accepted the results. And there was a a minority but steady increase towards a vote in favour of independence. 43% odd in the first referendum, uh, rising to nearly 47% in the second referendum. The third referendum was rushed through, as you say, the French courts have said that it was a valid exercise of uh, uh, a vote simply because voting is not compulsory in France. But the turnout halved between 2020 2021 in the midst of the COVID pandemic. People couldn't campaign in the way that they had for the previous two referendums. And the independence movement called on supporters just to stay away from the polls. And turnout dropped from more than 80% to 47%, so less than half people voted. And the vast majority of Kanak Indigenous people, the colonised people of New Caledonia, didn't participate. And so while France may say legally 
the referendum is validated, there's still enormous anger. And indeed, the case has been taken to the International Court of Justice to claim that it's not a credible and legitimate exercise of self-determination, especially for the colonised Indigenous people. They use the term recolonizing New Caledonia in this letter. Would you say that's an accurate <laughs> depiction of what is what is happening here, or is that a bit a bit a bit of fear mongering and a bit of trying to stir up stir up a bit more sentiment in that sort of area? It's it's a strong sentiment amongst Indigenous people in New Caledonia that they've been made a minority in their own land. And I say that as an Australian citizen because I've been reading what New Caledonians on both sides of politics have been saying about the referendum on the voice. People will know that Australian voters, by large majority, um, voted in a referendum on the 14th of October and rejected the idea of creating an advisory voice to our parliament that could give advice on matters affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. New Caledonia has had a body like that for 25 years. The Senakutumye is a structure created for Indigenous chiefs and customary leaders to provide advice to the Congress and government of New Caledonia. Um, and so they said, we've had it for 25 years. Vanuatu's had the Malvatumari Council of Chiefs since independence. Why is Australia going backwards? It's because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are only 4% of the population. They're a minority in their own land. So there's this great fear that the whole history of colonisation, which saw the arrival of convicts, then the arrival of free settlers, then the arrival of indentured labourers, all of which made Indigenous Kanak, the Melanesian people, a minority in their own land, that fear still exists. And I, I, I think it's often underestimated by people in, in France and certainly by the current French government that it is seen as a process of recolonization. And this statement is an attempt, I believe, to try and alert international opinion that this process is speeding up. The next elections for the local Congress and provincial assemblies is due in May 2024, six months away. And um, I, I think there's a possibility that those elections will be pushed back because Macron wants to ch change the electoral rolls in early 2024, which involves a major change to the French constitution. Whether we can do that, there's still a lot of argy-bargy in Paris about that. But this is trying to signal to people, particularly just weeks out from the Pacific Islands Forum, this is a serious problem that should be on the regional agenda. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. For myself and the RNZ Pacific team, till fast week four.